It's that time of year again when high school seniors start hearing from colleges and high school seniors who aspire to enter journalism pray that Missouri or Syracuse or Northwestern have granted them admission to their hallowed halls. And from a guy who attended the University of Delaware, a school that didn't even offer journalism as a major, I say, chill. Where you attend college isn't nearly as important as what you do where you attend college. Yeah, many of my colleagues attended the big time programs, but I'm a blue hen. Steve Russian and Charlie Pierce went to Marquette. Mirren Fader is a product of Occidental. Alex Coffey went to William & Mary. On and on and on. So dream big, hope big. But if you wind up at a community college or at a school with no program and a weekly student paper, just go hard, report, and write your ass off. Build up clips, build up connections. Your degree looks pretty on a wall, but it's your experience that carries you. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Diane K. Shaw, the legendary sports writer who, in 1981, became America's first woman sports columnist when she was hired by the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, and is also the author of a fantastic new memoir, A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. This is episode number 196. Let's sing some Yang. All right, Diane, first of all, thank you for doing this. I just want to say, literally last night, I finished A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps, a sports writer's memoir. I'm going to say something, and I wonder if you feel this way. I feel like a million more people should be reading this book than have <laughs> probably read the book. I feel like it deserves more attention. I feel like it's for aspiring journalists and journalists who don't understand sort of you know, what went on before they were going on. It's just a freaking manual and a guidebook. Did you write it hoping to have a huge audience or did you write it because you just had stuff you wanted to put out there? I wanted to write this book. Several friends had talked me into it. And once I started, I was having so much fun. I, I just wanted to write it. And I wasn't sure who the audience would be. There are several things in there, several kind of messages that I wanted to get across, especially to women how they just have to fight to get what they want. It's okay to fight to get what you want. Everybody fights to get what they want. And early on in the book, I was talking about when I decided I needed more money, that I wasn't being paid enough. And I kept asking, I want more money. And I was polite and I always got it. And then I was surprised to learn that women were afraid to ask for more money. Now, I don't know where that came from, but I think the proudest thing I did in my career was I figured out how to solve problems myself, including getting into a locker room. I found that I could just talk to people and get what I wanted. I didn't run for help. And I think that's important for men and women to know how to solve your own problems. You know, there are a million things here that fascinate me. Your hero growing up is Mickey Mantle. And you love Mickey Mantle and you get to interview Mickey Mantle in the late 1960s. You were at the National Observer at that point, I believe. Am I wrong on that? Correct. Okay. Uh-huh. And you get to, you're sitting down with Mickey Mantle at the St. Moritz Hotel in New York City and he's drinking, but you're there and you're thrilled and you're interviewing Mickey Mantle. And then he hands you a card and it says, want to fuck. And he's grinning. And 
It's funny. You had a later encounter with Jim Rice, a former Red Sox, where he tries kissing you in his hotel. And I'm friends with many, many modern women journalists who are working in the current climate. And if they deal with an asshole, it's much more subtle than that. And I wonder, like, here you are, you're coming along, you're trying to make a name for yourself. Mickey Mano hands you a card that says, want to fuck. Jim Rice tries, you know, kissing you in his hotel. How did you know how to deal with those circumstances? Um, was there a better way, a worse way? Is there a way you're supposed to deal with this shit when this shit happens to you? It's interesting. I, I was interviewed um, by an Irish broadcaster, and he asked me why, when Mantle gave me that card, I didn't just get up and leave. That's not what journalists do. Journalists have a story that they have to get. They have a deadline. They have competitors. <clears throat> and nothing was going to stop me. And the fact that he gave me this card, maybe that would be part of the story. I wasn't being hurt physically. So I just kept going. And I'm not even sure I was surprised. I'd read stories about Mantle, and he could have behaved like that. I had no intention of leaving him at that moment. And in a way, I almost felt sorry for him that he had tried to do that. The Jim Rice thing, it could have gone differently, I suppose. You know, it's funny, Jeff, because none of us ever know how we're perceived by other people. Um, I had, there was a Laker, he thought I was shy. Somebody else thought I was super aggressive. I don't know how I came across. <clears throat> but most people didn't mess with me. And I was always polite, soft-spoken. I don't know <laughs> why they left me alone. Um, Jim Rice did not like being told no. And after that, he wouldn't work with me anymore on the story, wouldn't talk to me. Um, he didn't force himself on me. Maybe I was lucky. The other thing a friend asked me, why didn't I report him to the Red Sox? And I thought, again, I have these blinders on. I'm writing a story. What's it going to do if I tell the Red Sox? I mean, it's going to aggravate the situation. Maybe it would help stop Rice from trying that with somebody else. But I wasn't thinking that. All I cared about was getting my story. Wait, I want to give you one of the best compliments I've ever given a writer. And I only preface it that way because I hope it sounds like a compliment because it really is. So I've, re I've been reading a ton of your stuff going through the archives from the National Observer, Newsweek, um, in LA. And you write with a certain like, I don't need this shit approach <laughs> that I freaking love. Like I love, like I've been in the locker room where you're waiting an hour to talk to someone and he's blowing you off and you're waiting and you're waiting. And you have a certain like, fuck it. If you don't want to talk to me, I don't fucking give a shit. Like I, <laughs> I, I got better things to do with my time. Am I misreading that? Or is there a certain, did you have a certain level of that in your approach? I don't know where you got that from. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't feel that way. I think one of the things that helped me in the locker room, um, I figured out pretty quickly that athletes uh, have tough skin. They like to challenge each other, kid each other, play jokes on each other. And they, they, had, they did that to anybody that walked in the locker room, including reporters. And I learned that if I could give it back a little bit, that they would see I could play the game and they left me alone. Now, I don't know if that's entirely true. Um, I, I was surprised uh, and maybe, I don't know how you felt. I was surprised to learn that a lot of male reporters weren't comfortable in the locker room. It's just not 
a cool place to be <laughs> um, back then. They hadn't figured out a better way for us to talk to the athletes. Now, um, I'm really glad I'm not a sports writer because you don't get anywhere near the athletes. They have their own social media. They don't need us. Right. Locker rooms are a fascinating place. I think you could someone could write a book just about sports writers in locker rooms. Um, <laughs> and I think the assumption sometimes is it's really awful for women writers and it's totally fine for male writers. And I can tell you, as a guy who's been in thousands of locker rooms, I've never once enjoyed going into a locker room. When you were coming along and you're one of the first, if not the first woman to enter some of these locker rooms, are you faking confidence, but you're kind of petrified or are you actually confident when you're walking in? Oh, interesting question. Um, maybe faking. Well, you know, it was true when I approached any story. Let's just say I've been assigned to do a story for you, about you and I was about to meet you for the first time. I would be nervous. Um, is he going to show up? Is he going to be a good story? Will I get what I need? And I think that's what I brought into the locker room. Um, maybe in the beginning, I wasn't sure how they would treat me, but I had to go in. I had to do my job. And I guess I just hoped for the best. And um, I was lucky, I guess, in some respects, nobody was terrible to me. For I figured they talked behind my back. I figured the sports writers talked behind my back. I didn't care. Right. I just went into the locker room. I wasn't looking for friends. I wasn't inviting anybody to a dinner party. I just wanted an answer to my question. But that's why I say, like when I said, like you have a certain <laughs> air in your writing of like, I don't need the Like, I don't have time for your bullshit. I don't have time for you to make <laughs> comments about me. I don't have time to be like, I'm here to do a story. I'm here to write a story. That's why I'm here. And I just feel like your work really oozes that. So. Well, I was just remembering, um, you know, like I said, I like to give it back. There was a Raider, and I, I just can't remember who. Um, it was after a game. I was in the locker room. I went over to talk to him, and he said, you know, Diane, last night my wife and I talked about you, and she said that if you had a legitimate credential, you should be in the locker room. And he said very proudly, he said, I agree. I said, she's just one of the boys. And I said, oh, no, I'm not. I look better than they do. I smell better than they do. And if you're really, really mean to me, I'll cry. And he just went, what? <laughs> so I was always kind of, you know, giving it back to them a little bit, keeping them off balance. Right. Um, well, you wrote one of the best columns of all time. And this is actually what inspired me to get you on here before your book. I read this a couple of weeks ago, then bought the book, then thought podcast. Um, Steve Carlton Former, you know, Hall of Fame pitcher, one of the no notorious assholes in the history of sports, <laughs> an anti-Semitic, chauvinistic, probably racist, bad, just a bad, bad guy and treated the media terribly. And it's 1983. I just want to read a tiny bit of this. You wrote a column uh, for the Herald Examiner uh, in L.A. and you wrote, having recently passed a statistical benchmark that is just having written my 300th column, I find I am besieged by athletes begging me to interview them. I know that only 15 other sports columnists in the history of journalism have ever reached, have reached this plateau, but I must say the constant round of interviews does grow wearisome. Every time a new team comes to town, it's the same thing. You think all the athletes could just get together and agree to one mass interview. To make matters worse, I once again find myself covering the playoffs. So now the requests for interviews have intensified all the more. Yesterday morning, no sooner had I reached my office and the phone rang. Yeah, I said, uh, Ms. Shot, this is Steve Carlton with the Philadelphia Phillies. I was wondering... 
I haven't even had my coffee yet, I grumbled. Don't you guys ever sleep? I'm sorry, said Carlton. It's just that I was uh, wondering if you would have time to, today to interview me. What team did you say you were from? The Phillies. I'm a pitcher. Oh, right. I remember. But haven't I interviewed you before when the Phillies won the 1980 World Series or after you got your 300th win? I'm sure I did. Actually, you didn't, Carlton said. I was rather hoping you would, but you always walk right past me. I've even sent you notes requesting interviews, but you never reply. You know how many games are in a season, I said? Yes, Carlton said meekly, but I felt I had to give it a shot. And it goes on. It's the best. It's truly the best. It's as good a column as I think has ever been written. What do you remember about that? I was afraid you were going to ask me this. Um, <laughs> You're like nothing. I remember nothing. No, somebody asked me what inspired me to write that. And maybe you as a writer, Jeff, have experienced this. Some of the best things I ever wrote, whether it was a sentence or a, a whole article, it just popped out of my head onto the screen without even me thinking it. And other times when I was trying to get a certain sentence or a paragraph and I worked and I worked, I finally got something, but it was never as good. So where do those magical things come from? Where did I get that idea? I can't tell you. I wish I knew. I can't tell you. And you never heard back from him, right? He was never like, hey. Oh, of course not. <laughs> no, I, I can't say that I expected to. Um, but it was fun just kind of... Uh, once I got the idea, it was just easy to keep writing it. You know, this is how busy I am. And you athletes are such a pain. And why do I have to deal with you? The same turning around what they how they treat us. Right. And that was the fun part of writing it. Wait, before I get into your bio a little, I am kind of fascinated by something like um, one recurring theme, especially later in your book, is people, especially when you were writing for GQ, people upset when they saw the stories which is kind of a, a badge of honor, you know, when people, like, I guess Denzel was pissed off, Howie Long was pissed off, they're different people. Do you care? Like, does it matter to you at all whether they like the story? Um, I guess I found it interesting. I mean, in the case of Denzel Washington, um, I, I reread this story trying to figure out what, it, what he wouldn't have liked because I didn't speak with him. His agent called me and his agent said he hated the piece his wife loved it. And, you know, one of the things I could think of in that situation, somebody takes a picture of you and I say, oh, what a great picture. And all you're seeing is that some hair is in the wrong place or that your nose looks too big or your smile's crooked. You see yourself differently. And so in the case of Denzel, I wondered if that was it. Do I mind? I, I only mind if I think I made a mistake. But if I think I wrote like the Larry Bird piece where I was the first person apparently to write that his father had committed suicide and that he wasn't paying child support to his little daughter, that was true. He just had refused to talk about it. I found it out through the sources. And so I did not feel bad about that. Do you think a guy like Larry Bird, I don't think I've ever asked anyone this, so you're Larry Bird and you're like, look, I like playing basketball. I make good money to play basketball. Why is it your fucking business if my dad committed suicide or even I'm not paying child support? Like why? It is understandable why he's pissed off, is it not? I agree. I mean, you know, if it were me or you, um, but that's what we do. And I think the, the child support part bothered me. 
because he was making a lot of money and how could he not help this child? Um, the father's suicide, I don't know. I, I can't even tell you today whether that was a mistake to write it or not. I mentioned to you before we started recording, I, I wrote Walter Payton's biography and in it, I, I found out from a medical report that he had herpes, okay? And I included it in the book. And when the book came out, he was, he was dead, a long dead, deceased. I thought, why did I include that? Like, so, was it just because I had the information and I was proud of myself for finding something? And I do feel like it's a tough question sometimes, is it not? Like, am I including this just because my own ego as a writer and reporter, or does it actually add something to the story? It's a, it's a good point. And it actually reminds me of another story that in the book with Paul Newman. Um, I, I did two interviews with him over a period of 20 years, but the first one, he had volunteered to direct the first student play at his alma mater, Kenyon College, after this new auditorium was built. And I was uh, assigned to go do a story about Paul Newman and the kids and the, the play. Um, and three weeks before I arrived, his son, Scott, overdosed and died. And so I was told, do not talk to Paul about his son. Okay, that's fair. I didn't. But I noticed and saw that he had such a great rapport with his students. And he often barbecued hamburgers and hot dogs at night for them. And they all would hang out together. And he was great at directing them. Everybody was, was so impressed with Paul Newman. And I found out, in fact, I probably asked one of the students at one of these cookouts, uh, what was it like when his son died? Did he go home or what? And they said, no, first he told us that day to be as loud, noisy, and obnoxious as possible. And that night, some of us put on funny costumes. We went to the house where he was staying, and we brought him some scotch or whiskey, some kind of whiskey and, and beer. And he came out in his nightshirt and thanked us. So I leave Kenyon College to go back to New York to write the story for Newsweek. And I wanted to put that in there because I just thought it said something nice about Paul Newman, how he handled the situation and how the students felt about him. But I also thought it's not fair to put it in the story without running it by him. So I called him and I started to talk about the students coming that night. And he said, God damn it to hell, the kid's dead. Why won't people stop asking me about it? And he slammed the phone down. And even now I get a chill because it's not nice to have someone hang up on you, but when it's Paul Newman and he then was so angry, I felt it was the nicest story I ever wrote about anyone. He canceled his subscription. <laughs> and for years after that, he wouldn't deal with Newsweek. The verdict came out and Time and Newsweek both wanted him on the cover. He went with Time. He would have nothing to do with Newsweek. And then 19, 20 years later, I was called to do a piece for Modern Maturity, which is now the AARP magazine. And I said, well, I'd be happy to, but I don't think he'll deal with me. And his publicist called and called me back and said, okay, Paul won't mention it if you don't mention it. I said, okay. So I had my second interview with him. He was lovely. He was a delightful guy. People said, well, why did you have to put that in the story? I just thought it was something, it said something nice about Paul Newman. That's why I put it in the story. I think it's really interesting. There are 
Well, in the book and also just in our careers as journalists, there are these moments like you have a moment with Denzel Washington where you're on the plane with him. Yes. Uh, and he, you ask him a question. He says, that's a racist question. And you have this moment where you call Paul Newman and he hangs up on you. Those awkward moments are just part of this job and they suck every time. And I, I've never figured out fully how to escape them without feeling like crap. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's true. But um it is part of what being a journalist is. You're going after information and you're not the publicist for the person you're writing about. That's what I had to remind myself. I don't have to write a nice story about you, Jeff. You know, if I find out that you like to uh, buy cats and strangle them to death, I'm going to put that in the story and you probably won't be happy about it. Right. Um, so I don't know. I'm going to always err on the side of journalists. Yeah, I agree 100%. I actually just want to say it's funny. I just read last night about your second Paul Newman interview. I just want to read the end of this. You wrote, his film, Where the Money Is, hadn't opened, but a screening in Manhattan was arranged for me. It was terrible, but I could see why Newman wanted to do it. It was a caper movie in which he, a con, comes up with a new way to break out of prison, fake a stroke and get transferred to a nursing home only to have his plan foiled. But the script was bad. When I returned to my apartment, there was a message on my answering machine from Newman. He asked that I call him and tell him what I thought of the movie. I lied. I had to. He sounded so hopeful on the phone. I really liked it. Fun plot. You come across awfully well. Do you think a lot of people will go see it? I sighed inwardly. That I can't say. Even producers never know how the public will react. But I bit my lip. I think it would do well. Feeling sad, I hung up. The movie bombed. Super awkward call right there from Paul Newman. There's no way you can tell him the movie sucked. He just can't. No. <laughs> no. And he was, I think he was um, 75. I think that's why yeah. they wanted to do the story on him. And he was showing his age a little bit. And I, I knew that I could tell how important it was to him to do this movie. Well, in fact, I wouldn't have told Denzel or anybody else I thought their movie sucked. I would try to avoid the question. But no, you can't tell somebody that their work that they're proud of is horrible. So <laughs> you've written a decent amount about people aging and sort of the process of aging. They have Mickey Mantle an older Mickey Mantle, now a drunk and trying to find his place, Paul Newman in a movie, and you're writing about him for the AARP magazine. You now are in your 70s. Do you feel like you had an understanding of aging when you're writing profiles in your 30s, 40s, 50s? Are there things you know now about aging that if you had known then, you would have approached differently? Well, I certainly didn't in my 20s and probably my 30s. I don't know Maybe not in the 40s. I guess I was like a lot of people. You know, by the time I get that age, they'll have invented something. <laughs> yeah. And I won't have any wrinkles. I'll have all my energy, you know, that kind of thing. Um, well, of course, now I do understand an awful lot. But um, in my 20s, there was a lot about life I just didn't know. Um, I started to write my first novel in my late 20s. And I realized I just not sure how people, grown up people act all the time. Right. So it's a learning process. Yeah. Um, it's not a disadvantage. It's just, and, and you can't, I don't know, maybe if you're taking care of an older person, but it's not something you really can absorb until you start experiencing these things. What made me sad was reading the Mickey Mantle. It was Mickey Mantle was coaching first base for the Yankees. And there was a story of this guy who's kind of, He's over the hill a little bit and blah, blah, blah. And I think he was 37, which was like a dagger to my heart when I'm reading that, you know, because you think, oh, he's in his 50s or 60s, 37 and he's done. 
I don't know if you can, you probably can't remember, but but back in the um, let's say '60s anyway, um, baseball players took off for the winter. They did. Go, they went hunting or fishing. Many of them needed second jobs. I think Nolan Ryan worked at a gas station because they, they hardly made any money as, in Major League Baseball. So they all got out of shape, terribly out of shape. Right. And then they came to spring training and they had to get back in shape. The fact that Mickey in those days didn't take care of himself um, probably wasn't that unusual. Yeah. I, I think he, if he were around today, we'd see a different mantle. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who has a great idea for promoting the throwback sports merchandise sold by 503 Sports. Two words, Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker? Dad, think about it. We get the USFL's greatest running back to endorse the jerseys, hats, and shirts sold on 503-sports.com. You know, like, hey, I'm Herschel Walker, cool dude and amazing running back. And when I'm not giving money to the needy or building Habitat for Humanity houses with Jimmy Carter, I'm wearing my 503 Sports New Jersey Generals throwback jersey. Casey, Herschel Walker is a full-on MAGA insane person who worships Donald Trump and thinks every American needs 10 guns and a lifetime supply of body armor. That's too bad. Maybe his son is available. So I'm fascinated by your career. You, um, you go to university, you go to Indiana, you graduate, you want to be a sports writer or you want to be a journalist. And the idea is, you know, silly girl, women aren't journal. You know, this is that's, that's a men's job. I want to write for Time. I want to write for Newsweek. You know, blah. you grew up watching baseball. Mickey Mantle obviously was a hero. You write for the Indiana Daily Student. And then, you you know, you kind of you start out on there. You get a job at Roll Call covering Capitol Hill. Very brief job. Then you get a job at the National Observer, which at the time was a big deal. You started recovering writing for a, a section for kids. Then you get bumped up. You become the uh, the youngest staff writer. And... You're kind of writing about a million different things, uh, profiles of different people. Observer folds in 77. You get hired at Newsweek. You're the number two sports writer at Newsweek. And then in 1981, you become the first female sports columnist in the country for the LA Herald Examiner. It's 1981. You know it's kind of uncharted territory. Why do you want to move to LA and become a sports columnist? I didn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think a lot of sports writers... Uh, that's their goal because being a columnist gives you a lot of leeway, gives you more money and gives you more notoriety, more fame. Everybody knows every sports person knows who you are. Um, I never really wanted to do that. And I'd never worked for a daily paper. I was at Newsweek and it struck me that although I love to write, I miss the reporting. And at Newsweek, if you're a writer, you were housed in this building on Madison Avenue and the reporters were in the bureaus around the country or the world. So if I wanted to do, I don't know, let's say a story on <clears throat> Sandy Koufax, I wouldn't go out there. Um, or I shouldn't say Sandy Koufax, let's say a, a movie star. Um, I would ask the Los Angeles Bureau to do the interview and send me the, the file. And when you're not actually doing the reporting yourself, I felt there was a wall between me and the person. So I, at Newsweek, I got that the, the job of being in sports and because they let me do my own reporting. Now I go out to, uh, I'm offered this job in Los Angeles. I wasn't that thrilled at Newsweek anymore. Um, I didn't know what my next move would be. It took me four months to make up my mind. 
that this is what I really wanted to do. I didn't know anybody in LA. Um, I never worked for a daily paper. I never even read sports columns. I took Dave Anderson to lunch, the famous columnist for the New York Times. He said, Diane, take it. <laughs> and so I don't know. I just, and in fact, I'm not sure at that time if I knew there were no other women doing this. Um, I just said, I don't know. I'm kind of, I've had my fun in New York. Let's see what's going on. And the weather's nice. So I went, but as I mentioned, I had two safety nets. I kept my New York apartment and Newsweek said they'd take me back if I wanted to come back. At one point, I, after I said yes, I wanted to say no. I was having literally having freeway nightmares that my car would break down. I'd be in an accident. I'd get lost. I'd get to the game late, blah, blah, blah. So Pete Axum said, Diane, you can't renege. You absolutely you can't call Jim Bellows, the editor, saying you're not coming. Go for three months. If you don't like it, then you'll come back. Okay. So I went. And somehow I, oh, thanks to Major League Baseball, there was a strike. So there wasn't a whole lot yeah. to even write about. Um, but I, I took to it. I liked it a lot. And I liked, I liked the column writing once I figured out how you write a column, which is basically you have an opinion. So I said, oh, I have to figure out how to get opinions. And it wasn't as hard as I thought it might be. But did you have opinions about the Dodgers, the Rams? Like, do you... Is it pretending to care or is it really caring? No, you really get involved. Um, no, before I moved out there, I, I didn't know those teams that well. But once you get in it, I mean, that's your specialty. So you get to, you, you, you watch all the games, you go to the games, you get to know the players and care, not, not so much, oh my God, I hope the Rams win. They're my team. No, not like that. It was caring to get the best story I could. Right. A lot of times when I've talked to women writers, they say the athletes weren't really the problem. Male colleagues were much more difficult to sort of gain support. <laughs> and I went, did you find that as well? Were the people at the Herald Examiner, were the other men in the sports department fairly open to the idea of having a woman writing about sports? I think the, the main problem I faced was that it got out that Jim Bellows, the editor of the paper, had hired this big shot from New York. It's at a whole lot of money. Um, I don't know where they got that from. It was a nice salary, but, you know, I don't know what they thought I was getting. Um, and that we, they had two sports columnists at the time, Mel Derslag and Doug Krikorian, and they bumped Doug down. So I became the second columnist. Everybody was polite, cooperative. If I needed something, they helped me. Nobody was openly resentful or unkind. And I found that was true of all the sports writers that I would, I would see at, at the ballpark. Um, again, I'm sure a lot of them didn't like me. Why they, I don't know, maybe they've had more practice being mean to women as the years have gone by. And I was new and nobody quite knew what to do with me or how to treat me. Right. Um, but I don't remember a single time when a sports writer was openly mean. I'm sure they were talking behind your back, at least to a certain degree. I think probably were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite parts, and this is just like, I just think you're freaking badass. Like uh, there's a there's a part here, the New York Times calls and they want you to, um, they want you to do a freelance piece on Pat Hayden, former Rams quarterback. And they're offering you 300 bucks. The sports editor is offering you 300 bucks. You wrote, I hesitated, $300, seriously? 
I'd never written anything for so little money. Of course, I wanted to write for the New York Times. What journalists didn't. But considering the time it would take for, to do the piece, the money was ridiculous. I'm sorry, I said. I'd love to write for your paper, but what you're offering isn't enough. I realize we can't pay a lot, but that's our going rate. I'm sorry, I said again, but writing for the New York Times is something you can be proud of. It can only help your career. I know that, but I can't accept $300. He was silent for a moment. Then, well, how much do you want? <laughs> I took a deep breath. I wanted even more, but I finally squeaked $1,000. This was followed by a loud sigh. And you end up getting not only a thousand bucks. Then he says, you can't have your byline. Freelancers don't get their byline. And you're like, well, I'm not doing it if I don't get my byline. So you got the thousand bucks. You got your byline. Where's the chutzpah come from? <laughs> I've often wondered myself. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I just, I felt insulted. I, I was honored that the New York Times wanted me to write, but I was insulted by the $300. I said, that's insane. I'm not doing this for $300. And then he was telling me this is so this will help your career that you've had this article in the New York Times. Only then he wouldn't give me a byline. So how is anybody supposed to know I wrote it? <laughs> no, that's some kind of honor. Nobody's going to know it, and we're going to pay you nothing. It's great. But that one, that one, I, I think I, I mentioned. Um, I might have gone ahead with it, thinking that if I do a good job, I they'll ask me to do another piece, and then maybe I'll get the byline. But he caved on both. Um, you know, I, women aren't supposed to be forward in, in these situations, but I didn't know that. I thought it was okay to ask for what I wanted. Well, I'm kind of fascinated by this because I actually feel like what you just said doesn't just apply to 1980, whatever, one or 82. I think that's still, I think women are still not, it's almost like I, I have a neighbor. So I live here in California and this neighbor down the street was talking about uh, Kamala Harris oh, I hate her. I can't stand her. And I just always think I can't stand AOC. I can't stand her. You never say that about men with the same attributes. Never. They're, they're being forward and aggressive, but they're being not Women are being obnoxious. And, and that's an age old problem we have here. If you're advising young women journalists coming up right now through the ranks, should you try to balance? Should you just be like, fuck it, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to be aggressive and I'm going to ask for what I want and screw you? Is there a tap dance that still has to be, you feel like still has to be applied a little bit? Like, how should you go about your career? I think I was aggressive in a ladylike way. How about that? That's fine. Um, <laughs> I don't know how I was perceived. I, I, I can't tell you that. I think in a way I had a bit of an advantage. I think being a girl back then when there weren't any, appeal to some people. Um, but I just, I don't know where I learned it, but I felt, okay, I should be getting more money. I'm going to ask for more money. Now, there were times when I didn't always get what I wanted, freelance piece, for instance. But the important things, I thought I should, I should let them know what I want. I had a, an editor at Newsweek, and he told me something very interesting. And he said, people take the path of least least resistance. If you push somebody, they'll let you push them and they won't fight back. So I found it didn't take a whole lot. I could tell um, when I tried to get into some of the locker rooms and I, I was always polite and nice. I wasn't threatening. I wasn't angry. I said, you know, um, getting into the, <laughs> the Raiders locker room, I said, yeah, I said, I know it's weird, Tom Flores. He was the coach. I said, I know it's weird. 
my mother did not raise me to do business with naked men, but here I am. I have to get in there. And he said, I don't know if you know this, Diane, but last year the Raiders dumped two male sports writers in the garbage can. I don't know what they'll do to you. That's awesome. And I sort of gulped and I said, look, if they're really, really mean to me, I'll cry and I'll never come back. Okay. Just let me come in. That's all it took. Okay. We'll let you in. Were you scared to go in? I was very nervous the first time. Yeah. I, I didn't know what to expect from these guys because you know, their reputation, we're the Raiders. We ride, ride motorcycles. The women and children hide when we come to town, blah, 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 blah. And the, the bad, the more difficult thing for me was this was 1982. The Raiders had just come to LA. They had just moved to LA. The first two games of the season, they were on the road and I, I was busy at home. Uh, they come back and there's a strike. So by the time the season resumed, I think the strike might have lasted nine weeks. By the time it, it, it resumed, it was my first chance to meet the Raiders. And that first day when I walked into the locker room, you know, they make you wait like 10 minutes or so outside before they open the doors. I walk in and, and most of the, the Raiders had take, stripped off their jerseys and none of them had their names over their lockers like every other team does. So I didn't know who I was talking to. <laughs> I said, uh-oh. And then this guy said, hey, what do you, can I help you? And I said, I'm looking for the, the uh, punter Ray guy. And, um, oh, yeah, his, his locker's down the last one. I thought he was sending me to the water boy. I didn't know. <laughs> and I got there. There was this tall, skinny guy. I said, Ray? And he said, yeah. I said, oh, you're Ray. Okay. And they were nice. They, they ended up being very funny, very smart, a lot of fun to deal with. So um, I don't know why I got my way. And I, I did something similar with the angels when, when there was a problem there. Um, they let me in. That's all I can say. Uh, I did not want to go, get a lawsuit. I, I just didn't see the point of a lawsuit. I felt it would be a lot of bad publicity. And all I wanted was to get in there and ask some questions and leave. So I don't know what's going on today. And I'm, I'm so saddened to hear that it still does go on today that men can be awful. I would think they'd be used to having all kinds of people in their locker. Well, I don't know if anybody goes in their locker room anymore, um, but. I just, don't you think a little bit, it's all about expectations. Like if the team said, if Al Davis went into the Raiders locker room or whoever went into the Raiders locker room and said, listen, we have women reporters now. If you don't treat them with respect, you will be cut. You will not have a job. I don't want sexual comments. I don't want anything. They're here to interview you. If you need to wear a towel, wear a towel. If you don't wear a towel, they're here to interview you. We will find you. We will cut you, whatever, if you do not treat this seriously. In a way, the teams really set it up to be a more awkward situation than it had to be if they just made the, your job depends on you being a decent human being. Well, I think the Dodgers did that. Mm -hmm. I Tommy Lasorda was very open about welcoming me. Um, I think the Lakers uh, were like that. The Rams with uh, their female owner, were they were the toughest. Um, and then, you know, the Raiders, Al Davis, oh, Diane, good to see you after three weeks or so. Um, but you're right. I think it, the policy does need to, to start from the top. And if they say, hey, guys, you know, right. deal with it. I also think women should know this is not high tea at Buckingham Palace. And um, they've got to do a job and, and everybody's not going to be so polite. 
I read stories about women who brought lawsuits. You know, this guy waved his thing in my face. I would have said, excuse me, I'm busy right now. Or I would have just said, <laughs> I would have given it back. I mean, it, it makes me sad to think that women can't deal with it. One of my favorite retorts is uh, there was a woman named Paula Smith who was covering, this is way back in the 70s. She was covering the Pittsburgh Pirates, I think for the AP or UPI. And the Pirates had a player named Dave Parker. And Dave Parker was overweight and he's naked one day. He calls her over and he says, hey, I bet you want to suck on this. And she, her response is, if I could find it under all that fat, maybe. And like the locker room went crazy. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's what I found uh, could be true. I don't know if you want to hear the Willie Wilson story. Yeah, go crazy. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, Kansas City team had a, a player, a good player named Hal McRae, an infielder, and he, he'd been good for many years. And then he had a couple years he wasn't so good. And now all of a sudden he was really good again. And Kansas City was coming to Anaheim to play the Angels. And I thought, call him. So I arranged to meet Hal McRae in the locker room early and we're sitting at his locker. I'm on a stool. We're both facing into the lockers while he's getting dressed. And after a while, I hear the team come in and I'm not paying any attention. And all of a sudden I hear some player say to the center fielder, Willie Wilson, Hey, Willie, don't take off your pants. Diane's sitting right there. And the locker room gets very quiet. And Willie Wilson says, Oh, well, you know what they say, you've seen one, you've seen them all. And without looking up, I just said, oh, no, Willie, you're wrong. It's always a pleasure. And they all <laughs> laughed, and that was that. Right. So I think that's the point I was trying to make earlier. Don't be scared. Give it back. Well, I want to say this wasn't even, this story wasn't in your book. I was doing, I was doing some deep dive into your catalog, and uh, I found this story, probably forgettable. You may not even remember writing it. 1974, Namath treats camp players like men. <laughs> and Dudley, Massachusetts, Dateline. And your lead was Joe Namath swept the, the windblown mop out of his eyes, hoisted the celebrated right arm and peered down field for a receiver. He danced a quarterback's jig, then sent the ball spiraling through the gray afternoon. 35 yards later, a pair of little hands reached up and grabbed the ball. That's pretty good, man, Namath yelled. Then he irrigated the field with red man tobacco juice and wandered away. Irrigated the field with red man tobacco juice is freaking joy to me, like absolute joy to me. And you just freaking breeze away. I have another story you wrote. It's a profile of Emma Bombeck from 1978. And you wrote, to hear Emma Bombeck tell it, she was married during a beer commercial in the 1949 World Series to a man as yet to budge from the table, even though she once appeared wearing a nightgown made of AstroTurf. She has three children, none of whom understood when she announced, your father and I are going to get our own apartments. Her washing machine eats socks, though never two of a kind, and she suffers from carpool crouch. Face it, size of 50-year-old Bombeck, I'm white socks in a pantyhose world. <laughs> you're, it's like, you're, it's really breezy. Like your writing style is just breezy and cool and casual and conversational. When you were writing these pieces, when you were writing your pieces, was there a conscious effort to follow a certain stylistic way? Was it just stuff that entered your head and came out? Well, I remember um, when I was working for the National Observer, and I think that piece was in the Observer, there was um, a conference room that was empty with a desk and a type. We used typewriters then, Yeah. If you, if you know what that is. And I would go in there by myself. And I was, I was a smoker then. I would, 
And I just needed to be alone thinking. I don't think I was trying to imitate anybody. When I was maybe in my late teens or early 20s, there were there were writers I wanted to imitate. But by this time, I had developed my own voice from, I don't know where it came, but it came. I can't tell you. I was trying to make it a little creative and something that would attract a reader and, and keep their attention. Do you read it out loud? Like I always say, like everything I write, I read out loud before I send it. Are you a read out loud writer? I read to myself. I don't say the words out loud, but I read it. Um, and then once it's published, I can't read it. I hate what I see in the publication. And then maybe four or five years later, I'll see it and I'll, I'll read it. And I'll go, oh, that's, that wasn't so bad. That was okay. Right, right. Wait, I have one more, one more good one for you here. So um, in 1992, you wrote Chief, My Life in the LAPD by Daryl Gates with you. The book was a bestseller. Daryl Gates at that point, this is after the Rodney King riots, Daryl Gates with the LAPD uh, chief was a loathed figure out here in California and nationally. And this book comes out and it sells really well, but people hate him. You're not the ghost author because your name is on the cover, but you're the, in the way the, you're the writer and the as told to writer. Did the backlash toward him hurt you? Or did you just see this as a book experience and hey? Well, first of all, uh, I'd like to back up a little bit. Um, I moved out from New York and the LAPD were Nazis and um, they were horrible and scary and all the bad stuff I'd ever heard about them. And unlike living in New York, if you live in LA, you're going to have, you're going to run into the police because if you drive a car, you're going to do something at some point where they're going to pull you over. So you have constant dealings with the police in New York. You, know, you probably go through most of your life without ever dealing with a policeman. Um, so they were scary. And then when I was assigned to do this Playboy interview and was surprised that Gates would do it, I was immediately struck by how different he was than what I had thought. He was very nice. He never made me feel like I'd asked a stupid question, although I asked many. Um, and he was smart. He struck me as being very smart. And I'm not saying I approved of him at that point. I just said, oh, this guy, he's interesting. So I had four interviews lined up. And after the third one, Rodney King happened. And I went back for my fourth interview shortly thereafter. And I was told that when Gates found out he'd been on an airplane when it happened, that he got physically ill when he watched the, the tape of it. And yes, he was not liked in LA. It was a, it was a little bit almost like the US there, half the population loved him and half the population hated him. Right. The conservatives and Republicans, they all, they all liked him a lot. I kept going back to interview him. He was making headlines all the time. And uh, then the riots broke up, blah, 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 blah. So when I was offered the opportunity to write this book, he had started with another writer and Bantam, the publisher, didn't like the first hundred pages. So Gates told me that. And I went home. I was, I had a mystery novel coming out with Bantam and I called my agent and I said, keep your eye on this situation. I think I might want to write the Gates book. I wanted to write it because it was such a, there was so much going on in LA. I said, I will have a front row seat to an important chapter of LA history. That's why I want to do this book. And then I got to know Gates and was he a racist? I don't think he was. 
Um, I got to know a lot of the cops close to him. We socialized a lot. I never discovered any kind of racist comments and, and Gates promoted many women. In fact, when his regular driver was away, one who filled in was a woman whose job basically was to protect him. I think that when, when it was news got out that I was doing the book, I lost some friends. Yes, I did. People couldn't understand. And if I had been one of those people, I probably would have felt the same way. But I'd gotten to know him. And um, I liked him. I came to like him. But there were times when there'd be a police shooting. And I would say, Daryl, I don't what happened? I, it, it seemed awful to me. And he would explain it patiently why the officer had fired. And it would make sense. And then I'd get home and I'd think, I do, I'm still not sure that I like that idea. There was the story about Marcus Allen, which I'd like to mention because it was a racist department. Marcus Allen at the time was the star running back of the Los Angeles Raiders. Very handsome, very, I think he's in the Hall of Fame, very good player. And I got to know him. And one day I'm at the office and I get a phone call. Some guy says, hey. I just heard Marcus Allen got arrested. I said, what? He said, yeah, arrested, I think for stealing a car. I said, what? Okay. I called his agent. The idea that Marcus Allen would steal a car sounded crazy to me. His agent said, you know what? Marcus really doesn't want to blow this thing up. Just rather forget it. I said, what happened? Okay. So Marcus has a Porsche and he's driving in West Hollywood, I think on Melrose. And there's a cop behind him sirens, lights. So Marcus turns on to a side street, a residential side street. This cop gets out of the car, opens Marcus's door, yanks him out, throws him to the pavement and points a gun at his head. At this point, people in the neighborhood come running out of their houses. That's Marcus Allen. That's Marcus Allen. This cop, believe it or not, didn't know who Marcus Allen was, but he called for backup. The backup cop showed up. He knew who Marcus Allen was. Somehow they resolved the situation and Marcus went on. I called the LAPD, but for, well, first I think I was told what had happened was Marcus had just bought two new cars, the Porsche being one of them. Somebody, Marcus or somebody else, had put the wrong place on the car. So that's why they thought he'd stolen the car. So now I'm calling the LAPD. I haven't met Daryl Gates. I don't know any of these cops yet. I get the PR guy. I said, tell me about this Marcus Allen incident. So he goes through it. He tells me basically the same stuff, but made it sound better for the cops. And I said, finally, I said, sir, you don't know me, but I'm a white woman. If I were in that car, would your cops have hauled me out, thrown me to the pavement and pointed a gun at my head? And he said, are you saying we're racist? I said, I'm just asking. He said, you're saying we raised, I said, I'm just, and he slams the phone down. So I start writing my column and about an hour later, the editor of my paper came over and said, uh, just got a call from LAPD. They don't want us to run the story. I said, well, I'm writing it. And he said, good. Okay. To me, that was out and out racism. Yeah. Let me ask you a final, final question. Okay. One thing I, I kept thinking about when I was reading your book is in a way, I wish I had come along in sports journalism 20 years earlier. Uh, I don't even smoke, but like there's something about the cigarettes and the drinking and Elaine's <laughs> and Runyon's and like 
writers hanging out till three in the morning, sitting in the corner of a bar. Did I come along too late? Am I, did I miss yes. it? I did. Well, you miss two things I'll say there. First of all, um, from what I gather, athletes don't need us. They have social media. You know, as a reporter, I could go into the locker room, the Dodgers locker room before the game, sit, sit, talk to this one. I had to smoke cigarettes with some of them and move on. You pick up things and you get to know them. You can't do that now. You walk in the locker room, there's nobody there. If I were 25 years old, maybe I'd be used to it. But looking back on it, I don't know how you get to know these people. I'm not going to go into details, but in the book, there's that one story about I spent a whole day with Jim Palmer, the best pitcher in baseball, the day before he was pitching that night, again, the most important game of the season. And he thought nothing of spending the day with a reporter. And I thought nothing of, you can't do that anymore. So you're going to miss that. But when I moved out to LA, I, I didn't have a Runyon's or a Cowboy or Elaine's. It, maybe it was different at the LA Times, but at the Herald, um, everybody kind of just went home. I didn't know of any gathering place after work where you could find a bunch of journalists having a drink. And also, <laughs> you had to be careful how much you drank because you had to drive your car home. Right. So um, I missed that part of journalism. I don't know if it's different now. I, I, I doubt it. Uh, people probably just go to the gym or something. But that was one of the fun parts of, of New York journalism life. Yes. When you wrote in the book about flying with Denzel Washington, I was thinking there's no way in hell someone, a reporter is being allowed to fly with Denzel Washington today. It's just not happening. Or you flew with Dennis Quaid. That I probably could have lived without. Um, I don't know because in the 80s and 90s when I was doing a lot of those GQ covers, these guys wanted to be on the cover. They were desperate to be on the cover. So maybe that was part of the reason I had a lot of access Today, I don't know what it would be like. Probably not the same at all. Well, here's the sad. I said this uh, recently. I have um, in my background here, when I wrote a book, a Walter Payton book, it was the cover of Sports Illustrated, right? And that was a huge deal for me, a huge deal for me. If you ask me right now, what would have a bigger impact on selling books? Cover of Sports Illustrated, the magazine itself, or Justin Bieber tweeting out how much he liked my book? And you're just talking (laughs) about book sales? You're going with the Bieber tweet every time. It's a crazy upside down world. I don't know where it's going. Um, As long as we can get good information out to people. Um, But I feel even though you can probably read a thousand LeBron James quotes or pieces of information every day, I don't think you can get to know him the way you could if you were a reporter doing a lengthy story and, and, and having a number of hours with him. I agree. You just, you just don't get that kind of insight anymore. I agree 100%. Well, Diane, I just want to say, I mean, you admire. And you. your book was wonderful. It was, it was nostalgic to me, and it made me sad that I wasn't, a, you know, there for this. And it just, it's, a, it's a beautiful collection, and, and I, uh, I really appreciate you doing this. It means a lot to me. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And I'm looking, I, I'm, I'm seeing a bit of sunlight through a window, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe today's one of those days it wouldn't be so bad to be back in L.A. I want to thank today's guest, Diane K. Shaw, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can buy Diane's memoir, A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to a vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make zero dollars for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember... 
keep writing. <laughs>